The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Would you join me as we pray and ask the Lord for help? Father in heaven, as your word is preached and as your son is exalted, would you be pleased to speak in such a way that we would get a fresh filling of your spirit. Cause your word to go forth in power so that we would grow and look more and more like your son. Do this for the sake of your name and for your glory and for the good of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. How we respond to hardships or trials often reveals the depth of our faith. How we respond to trials or hardships often reveals the depth of our faith. Take, take Job, for example. Job from the book of Job. After everything in his life more or less fell apart, what did he say? The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And unfortunately, his wife, a little bit later, said, why don't you curse God and die? How do we respond or react to difficulty in our life? And what does that reveal about the depth of our faith and our spiritual maturity. That's what our passage this morning talks about. Our passage reveals how the disciples respond and react to their arrest, and then the trial, and then now their release. They could have reacted a number of ways. They could have bemoaned the injustice. How dare they arrest us? All we did was heal a man. That they could have felt sorry for themselves. Kind of, woe is me, licking their wounds. They could have lived in fear of the threats that were lobbied at them and, and just said, let's not do anything that would rock the boat from here on out. But that's not what they did. They, they could have been so discouraged that they told all the other apostles and disciples, let's, let's really be careful from now on. That's not what they did either. Our passage this morning in Acts 4, 23 to 37 is the concluding scene of the story that began all the way in Acts chapter 3. We see the healing of the man and then Peter's sermon and then they're arrested and then they're put on trial. And here now is the conclusion of that story. How do the apostles respond? How do they think about conflict and opposition? And maybe for us this morning, how do we respond to conflict and opposition? How do we think about that? So often, I'll confess, when opposition comes, I just want to pray, Lord, take it away. Our passage reveals the glory of God at work through the people of God as they look to the Son of God enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the main emphasis of our passage is two things, boldness and generosity. Boldness and generosity. So here's the main point. God's power 
produces a bold and generous people. God's power produces a bold and generous people who endure opposition in order to accomplish the mission. That they see themselves as being commissioned by the God of heaven and earth to accomplish a mission. So throughout Acts, we, we've seen different characteristics of the early church. We, we see that they're filled with the Holy Spirit, that they're devoted to prayer, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching and preaching, and now we get these two other traits. The early church is to be marked by boldness in Christ and to be marked by generosity as well. And my aim for us this morning is, see, is to see the privilege of being a bold and generous people who make much of Christ in this world. It is a privilege for us to be bold and generous in order to make much of Christ. Last week, I called for us to stand and to speak and to even be willing to suffer for the name of Jesus. And this week, we want to see how people who live for Christ are increasingly bold and generous by the Spirit. So my outline this morning is broken up into two sections— 23 to 31, a big God produces bold believers. A big God produces bold believers. And then 32 to 37, a gracious God produces generous believers. A gracious God produces generous believers. So look with me at verses 23 to 31. Peter and John are released, and verse 23 opens by saying, They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. The actual word there, instead of friends, is actually they went to their own. It means they went to their fellow believers or those of their community, and they report what happened. And this results in a prayer that spans verse 24 all the way to 30. And in this prayer, they praise God, they express their dependence on God, and then they ask for continued power. Now, look, notice with me in verse 24, it says, they lifted their voices together to God. Now, this doesn't mean that they spoke in unison, but very likely that a few of them were praying in such a way that everyone was able to say, yes, I, I agree with that. It's like when you're going to a really good prayer meeting, and I know that for some of you that sounds like an oxymoron, but I, I mean it. When you go to a good prayer meeting and everyone says, amen, yes, Lord. That's a way of saying, I co-sign on what was just prayed there. There's this sense in which everyone's heart is united, and they're saying, Lord, do that. That that's expressing the longings of my heart as well. Now, I want to look at this prayer in three parts. And the first is this. I think they affirm God's lordship in verses 24 and 25. They affirm God's lordship. The prayer begins in verse 24. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Spirit. The word for sovereign Lord right there is translated, it, it kind of expresses God's absolute authority. The Greek word is where we get the English term despot, though that has a negative or cruel connotation. The better fit would probably be potentate, a ruler who can do whatever he wants. He is sovereign. He is the Lord, that God possesses absolute authority as the master. Now, I want us to notice one thing. Look with me in verse 25. Notice how it says, David is called your servant. And then in verse 27, scroll down just a little, 
further down, Jesus is called your holy servant. And then again in verse 30, Jesus is called your holy servant. And then they call themselves in verse 29, your servants. Three different times, David, Jesus, and even the apostles. They're calling themselves the servants, which is pointing to that there is a master. There is a Lord who is over all things, and that Lord is God Almighty. He is the Lord over all things. He is sovereign. And just as an aside for us this morning, our prayers, this is how they begin a prayer. Our prayers ought to reflect our theology. What we believe ought to shape how we pray. Good theology A theology of a big God ought to shape all of our prayers as we look to a sovereign Lord. Let the truth of a big, sovereign Lord, master of all things, pervade how you think and react and respond and even pray. I I know a song that we sing here at Bethlehem in actually probably the nursery and some of you help teach the kids. And so I want the kids to help me if you know the song. Actually, I want the adults to help me too. I want everyone to sing this because it reflects our big God theology that we love here. And it goes like this. You're going to sing it with me. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing our God cannot do. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing our God cannot do. The mountains are His, the valleys are His, the stars are His handiwork too. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing our God cannot do. Thank you for doing the hand motions. My daughter said, we have hand motions. I said, I don't know them. But, but those truths, that's what the early church opened their prayer with. That we serve a massive God who oversees everything. He made the heavens and the earth. So are we afraid of a few threats from a few religious leaders? No! We have a big God who holds the world in his hands. There is nothing that our God cannot do. That ought to shape how we think and pray and how we respond to opposition when it comes. Number two, the the second thing about this prayer. They affirm God's sovereignty. So they affirm God's lordship, and now they affirm God's sovereignty. I know they're very close, but we'll look at Psalm 2. They quote Psalm 2 in verses 25 and 26, and it says, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. What Psalm 2 does is it describes the futility of kings and rulers that gather together and mount up an insurrection against God and his anointed one. And what does God do? He laughs in derision at the rebellious efforts of these nations. It's futile. We, we just sung of it. There's nothing that our God cannot do. He is strong. He is mighty. And so they're citing Psalm 2 to help them understand and interpret 
the opposition that they have just experienced. And the way they put it together is this. The, the threats and the religious leaders that just rejected us, they don't go home and lick their wounds and say, woe is me. They say, that's exactly how Jesus told us it would happen. It's exactly how the scriptures speak of how it will happen. Jesus will have opposition, and so we now have opposition because we're preaching the name of Jesus. In, in verses 27 and 28, they interpret how they understand Psalm 2. It says this in verse 27. Follow with me. For truly in this city there are gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had destined to take place. So what he's saying there is Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and even the Jews, Israel, are those who are conspiring against Jesus, the anointed one. And this is to show that all of that opposition then and all of the opposition now, Annas and Caiaphas and all the religious leaders, is not new. Their rebellion and their plans will be futile. And, and so we're supposed to ask the question, well, why is it going to be futile? Well, because all of it came to pass exactly as God sovereignly planned. That's what it says in verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is the stunning reality of the sovereignty of God. That it's fully compatible with human responsibility. Yes, people make sinful choices and God can hold them to account for them. And God even planned the very crucifixion of his son. Even ordained it. The people plotted against Jesus and they're held responsible for their sin and yet it was planned and predestined by God. God ordained that humans would carry out this plan and yet they're held fully responsible. This is probably best illustrated elsewhere in Acts, which we already looked at. Acts 2.23, it says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Jesus was delivered up according to God's plan and foreknowledge. But what happened? What does he say? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's sovereignty is fully compatible with human responsibility. And we just have to hold that tension in place. Acts 13, 48 says very similarly. When the Gentiles heard this, which was salvation coming to the Gentiles, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And how many believed? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So people need to respond in faith, and yet God is the one ordaining all things to come to pass according to the wisdom of his will. But the bigger question then is, why does this matter? Why does praying this way matter? It matters because if God is sovereign over even the death of his own son, sovereign over the opposition and persecution of his saints, it means that God is sovereignly in control of whatever trials and suffering and persecution and hardship that you're facing this morning. Trust that God will work good from your pain and suffering. None of us would plan our lives if we sort of had, 
the ability to sort of plan out our entire life. None of us would plan for suffering and pain to be part of it. But every single one of us can testify that in the suffering and in the pain, we have seen more clearly the heart of God. That in the midst of the trials, we have sought God more than we would have otherwise. We have prayed more deeply than we would have otherwise. We have read the Psalms, especially the Psalms of lament, and we say, oh, now I know what they're talking about. That in times of prosperity and good times, we did not understand. We prioritize prayer. We're ministered to by God's word. And so in suffering, brothers and sisters, remind yourself of God's sovereign power and of his love for you. The third thing. So, so they affirm God's lordship. They affirm his sovereignty. And now they ask for God's power in verse 29 and 30. They, they turn and make request of God. And, and let me just highlight, l- let's just see what they don't, what they don't pray for. I, I think this is so stunning. They don't pray in precatory psalms. They don't wish bad things would happen to their enemies. They don't pray with bitterness or whining or vengeance or retaliation. They don't pray for the persecution and opposition just to go away. What do they say? Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They pray for three things. Boldness, healing, and signs and wonders. And they only mention the opposition just in passing. Look upon their threats. What they really want is boldness. Now, I think this is really stunning if we can see it. So let's look at why they ask for healing and signs and wonders. Healing is what got them all into this trouble in the first place. The healing of the lame man in chapter 3, 1 to 10, is what got them in trouble which gave them opportunity to preach, but it brought about all of the opposition. And so now, when they pray for more healing, more signs and wonders, what are they asking for? They're asking that God would work, yes, but they're asking for more opportunity to proclaim the name of Christ with boldness and for opposition to come. Normal people Look at what happened. Okay, what, what brought about the opposition? Let's stop doing that. And they say, no, 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 bring it on. We want more of that opportunity, more opposition, so that we can proclaim the name of Christ. They pray specifically that God would grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So what would possess someone to pray for more healings, more signs and wonders that would bring about opportunity, but also opposition and then boldness to do that? It's because they have a very clear understanding that they are on mission, that they have been commissioned by the Lord of heaven and earth to go and make disciples. They do not pray for a life of ease and comfort because that's not what they're called to. They're not praying that all of this would just go away so that we could live peaceably. There there is uh, other passages in the Bible that talk about living peaceably, but they have a very clear sense that we have been sent on mission. We're to testify to the name of Jesus. That's why we exist right now. So 
If there's opposition and if there's opportunity, bring it on. Lord, give us more boldness to declare the name of Christ. And so I want to ask us this morning, do we pray like that? Do we pray for more opportunities to testify to the person and work of Jesus? Do we pray and ask God for boldness and courage? Too often, I think, our prayers are small. We fe- and I fear that small prayers mean that we have a small God. Our prayers ought to be audacious and big because we have a sovereign Lord over heaven and earth. Small prayers don't take into account God's lordship and sovereignty and power. And so will we be resolved to pray and to ask God for audacious things, even asking for the nations? Uh, I just want to illustrate this. There can be a temptation for some of us who've been around for a while to think that the best days of the church were behind us. You know, back in those days, we're celebrating 150 years uh, anniversary this year, and, and, you know, maybe three or four decades ago, we hired this young whippersnapper professor from Bethel named John Piper. We sent out dozens of global partners. We, we launched a college and seminary and planted dozens of churches. And, and some of you remember, and you say, oh, I came at Romans 4 or whatever it is, right? And now our culture has changed and our world is fractured and perhaps the best days were behind us. That is nonsense. The best days for God's people are always before him, always before us. Every single day we are getting one step closer to the consummation of all things. And now we have been sent on mission by the God of heaven and earth to go forth. And guess what? There is more opposition than there was 40 years ago. And it means that there is more opportunity to make known the name of Christ in these twin cities, in these northern suburbs, and to the very ends of the earth. We have a fresh and future grace to receive from the hand of God, do we not? We have work to do. We have opportunities in the face of opposition. We have the very Spirit of God pulsing through our veins to give us boldness and courage in the face of opposition. God's people do not pray small, close-minded, feeble prayers. We ask for the nations and for the lost. Join me. Join me as we look towards Easter. Pray with me. God, hallowed be thy name. Hallow your name among my neighbors, among my coworkers, among these twin cities. Hallow the name of Jesus. Here in this area and to the very ends of the earth. In, in verse 31 we read, of God's answer. The place was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So they asked for boldness and then they received it. Here is just the stunning grace from God that this place was shaken. Now, it could have been an earthquake, but whatever it was, it provided a tangible sense of God's presence and of his response. It's a little bit like Exodus 
19, 18. It says, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and smoke, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Or Isaiah 6, 4, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The shaking is to point out that God's power and presence is among them in answering their prayer. And then it says that they're filled again with the Holy Spirit. And we, we've already talked about that, but it's just worth mentioning again. It's not as though they haven't received it, but what I think is happening is they're receiving a fresh filling of the Spirit so that there would be a renewed awareness of the Spirit's power a renewed awareness of the Spirit's presence to enable their witness. This would be the opposite of quenching the Spirit or grieving the Spirit. And my prayer for us this morning is that we would receive a fresh filling of the Spirit so that we would be empowered to speak the name of Jesus and to be bold witnesses in our world. Let's look at the second half, verses 32 to 37. A gracious God produces generous believers. I think verse 32 to 37 can be summarized that way. A gracious God produces generous believers. This passage describes how the community is so unified together in Christ. There's the addition of hundreds of new believers. Now they number 5,000, and it says in verse 32, they were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 33 says, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So here we have this Christ-centered community. God's grace is being poured out on them. And what do we see? We see this overflow and springing up of generosity. God's grace unites their hearts and minds so that they're united, not just in a community, but united in purpose. And the one thing that Luke draws attention to is the sacrificial sharing that's taking place. Notice how this generosity manifested among this community. First, it happens willingly. It's not coerced. They held things in common because no one valued their stuff over their community. This was not paying dues or communism or socialism or forced, but this is a beautiful overflow of generosity because we see the needs of others. We can also notice that it was voluntary. No one had to sell their houses or land, but some thought that it was the right thing or the good thing to do. And this is actually most apparent in chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira, Peter says to them, after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? That's Acts 5, 4. So it, it was your money. It was your land. You could have kept it. The issue there was lying, not of ownership. And so no one had to sell everything, but instead generosity springs up from this spirit-wrought unity and love that is taking place. And then there's this distribution of money that's taking place that's orderly and sacrificial, and they lay it before the apostles. And so What do we take away from this? Christian generosity is motivated by the transforming power of the gospel. Christian generosity is not something we kind of coerce one another to do. 
but it flows up from having tasted of the sweetness of who God is for us in Christ Jesus. Because I have received so much grace from God. I've been so lavished grace. It's so abounding. It's overflowing in my life that I've tasted and have seen the goodness of God in my life. That when I see someone else in need, it's nothing for me to give in order to meet that need. We cannot but want to be more like Jesus. The grace of God inspires a culture of gracious giving. Did you catch that? The grace of God inspires a culture of gracious giving. Now, some commentators even mention how Greek philosophers would have idealized true friendship as those who held everything in common. And so when, when Peter speaks this, or, or when, they, when Luke writes this and, and others read it, Luke's description would have caused Gentile readers to conclude that their high ideal of the perfect community is actually being realized and achieved by the early church. Now, in verse 34, it says, there was not a needy person among them. And that alludes to Deuteronomy 15.4. And in Deuteronomy 15.4, Israel was to keep God's commands so that God would bless them with no needy persons. And so I think what Luke is doing is he's illustrating that in these last days, the new and reconstituted new people of God are so carrying out Christ's commands, God's commands, living according to how they've been commanded to live such that there's no needy among them. And then finally, they cite Barnabas as a positive example of someone who sold property to meet the needs of those within the community. We're not told much about Barnabas yet, and we'll get to him later in our series in Acts, but Barnabas serves as an example of how someone with wealth sought to cross social barriers in order to benefit others in need. And so his name, the Son of Encouragement, is very fitting. So what should we take away from this? Christians who have tasted of the generosity of God, the self-giving sacrifice of Jesus, are those who are privileged to well up in generosity in loving others. People who have received the grace of God want others to experience that very grace of God. And we have no hesitation becoming the means, the conduit by which others receive that grace. It's like someone says to you, you look so happy to be a Christian. You never seem to be all that anxious why is that? Do you say to that person, well, I can't tell you. It's kind of a secret. It's just for me. I, I don't really want to tell you. I, I'm sorry that you're miserable, but you're just going to have to stay that way. I can't share my secret with you. No, we don't talk that way. When people say, tell me of the hope that lies within you, we say, yes, let me tell you. And what we normally have to do is hold back so that we don't just talk for 30 minutes without stopping. Because we have been those who have tasted of the goodness, of the sweetness, of being forgiven. We've tasted that Jesus was born, lived, died, rose again, ascended into heaven, forgiven us of all of our sins so that we could have peace and life. 
just attended a funeral this past weekend. It was a celebration of life because there is no victory for death. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. And when others come and say, tell me the hope that you have, of course we give of that hope. And in the same way, when we have received lavishly from God, of course it overflows into our life and we give to others. We have tasted of the grace of God. Generosity is not to be coerced, but an overflow of what we have experienced in Christ. And so uh, I think the best way to inspire generosity among us is to just share the stories of generosity. So I know of people here in this body who have given away or lent their vehicles to others, global partners or others in need or seminary families. I know hundreds of you give regularly and generously to our Helping Hands ministry, and that has blessed hundreds of people. Thank you. I know hundreds of you support our global partners directly with financial support and prayer. I know of families who make their cabins or lake homes available for others who cannot afford a getaway. Did you know that this North Campus needed a roof to the tune of 400 or so thousand dollars? And someone welling up, having tasted of the goodness and the generosity of the Lord Jesus Christ said, let me write the check. And they don't even go to this campus. They don't even get to partake of the gift that they gave. I know of people who have lent their time and energy to homeschool someone else's kids when that mom fell ill with cancer. I know people who drive great distances to give others rides to church. I know people who pray regularly and steadfastly for others. I had some car trouble last week, and someone texted and said, you can use my car for the week if you don't get yours up and running. Some of us have stimulus checks that we can put to use in creative, prayerful, thoughtful ways in order to be a conduit of grace into lives of others. I know people here in this congregation who have said that they would underwrite someone else's rent If they can't make ends meet. There is so much abounding grace. Because we have tasted of the sweetness. Of the generosity. And of the grace of God. In the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. And I'm just praying. That we would grow. Increase. That that would abound all the more. The world looks in on that type of generosity, and it makes no sense. What are you getting out of it? Where's the payoff? And we say we do it because we have so much joy in Jesus, and we want others to experience that same joy. Now, I, I will give one suggestion. I know some of us are eager to bless others, but we don't know how. We don't know who. And I would just say, just put this one singular practice in place. If you don't know people who could use your help, and it doesn't need to be money, it could be your friendship, it could be your time, it could be your energy, it could be your skills, it could be your gifts, invite others over. People you've never met here in this body, new members, people who don't look like you, people you don't know, singles and college students and empty nesters and retirees or or, or just someone different from you. Just invite them over and get to know them. And hear the stories of how God is at work in them and try to discern needs and how you 
can be a son or daughter of encouragement in the lives of others. We have a mission and we have a purpose. Sometimes I like to sign my emails together in the greatest cause at the very end before I put my name. Because that's exactly what we're engaged in. The characteristics of the early church for boldness and generosity is not just to terminate there, but it's because we have been sent on mission by God to go and make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that Jesus has commanded. We have been sent on mission. We've been commissioned by the very Lord Jesus himself. We are together in the greatest cause. It's not just for those in formal vocational ministry, serving at the church or global partners. It's every single one of us. Every single one of us. We are to use our lives and to think about how can I give the most glory to God in and through my life? How can I magnify the glory of Christ? How can I exalt his name? in my home, in my attitude, in my words, in my social media presence, in my hospitality, in my generosity, and in my boldness. And this is true whether you're a homeschool mom or an engineer or a janitor or a CEO. It's true if you're a student or a retiree in business, in retail, in the service industry, or whatever else. It's true if you're single or married, a widow or a widower, or just a kid, quote-unquote, here this morning. We have been commissioned and called and to be united in this singular aim, singular mission. We have a world that is falling apart. It's decaying right before our eyes. And, and Jesus calls us to be what? Be the salt of the earth. Be the transformative global preservative that would stave off the decay of our world. We have a world that is living in utter darkness. And Jesus calls us to be what? You are the light of the world. Help people see. Help people not perish in darkness. Help people get rescued out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. And so we have been called to be on mission to magnify Christ. And guess what? We have received each and every single one of us, the Spirit of God, the very Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, is pulsing through our veins to give us boldness and generosity so that God would get all of the glory. And so what we need in the church this morning is Christians who will be unabashedly bold for Christ and show with their lives and their money and everything else that Christ is worthy and more satisfying than anything else in all the world. Let's pray. Father, give us boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus and give us generosity that overflows from grace to love one another. Do this for the advance of your kingdom. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.